So welcome back everyone. Did you feel like not coming? <laughs> it's okay, I mean it's just the way it is. And uh, you know the real, it's nice to see these predicaments because the whole point of the practice is to not have to be completely governed by our whatever impulse happens to be strongest in the moment. Because a lot of times the strongest impulse or the strongest intention isn't what's most wholesome. And without mindfulness, if there isn't that simple, clear presence, we're in a sense blind, and that means we blindly just act out whatever the habit energy is. But instead, you know, we can be sitting there on Tuesday afternoon feeling like it'd be nice just to go home and rest or whatever, and or just the thought of going and meditating is just like repulsive. We can, we can just feel that, you know, and we can just know. It's so liberating to know it's just a repulsive feeling. It's just this thought or this emotion. And we don't actually have to make it or turn it into anything more than that. And surprisingly, if we don't feed it with identification, if we don't take that thought or emotion personally, like everything, it arises and it ceases. It just disappears. I mean, think about if our thoughts and emotions didn't disappear, it'd be really crowded <laughs> in our minds. So thoughts, emotions do come and go. So one of the things that we'll focus specifically this week is the experience of emotion. And it's, you know, just the same set of instructions, but, you know, initially it was really with one object, like the breath, and then we, last week the body, this week, it's really the thoughts and emotions. Just as a way of like uh, highlighting or illuminating this aspect of experience. And the thing about emotions, you know, they're, it's more subtle, they're more subtle and more seductive in the sense that we take them personally. That's our habit with emotion. It feels so personal when we have an emotion. So, in our meditation practice, one of the great great insights that this is an ordinary insight, meaning it's available to all of us, is when an emotion arises in a meditation period, we have an opportunity that we don't really have in daily life, which is we can be aware that the sadness has come into the mind. It's here. It's like this. And we can be present with the sadness all the way until it's not there anymore. And we see that sadness goes away without us having to do anything with it. Craving or lust comes and goes away without us having to gratify the desire. Because the thing that desire does when it arises, in a sense it's saying, if you don't do something about this, this ache, this wanting, isn't going to go away. But it does go away. We don't have to gratify desire for the desire to go away. We don't have to do something about anger for anger to go away. The cause for anger or desire or any afflictive emotion to go away is to see it for what it actually is, to see it as it actually is, to not take it personally, but to see it just... So we're not denying it, we're not detaching from it. We're there, we're aware it feels like this, it looks like this, it tastes like this, it is like this. But we're not doing that extra thing of making it mine, spinning with it, proliferating around it. 
And that calm, clear presence is what mindfulness provides. It gives us this other alternative that we don't have when we're blind, when we're just distracted. Then the emotion comes up and we completely own it. It's This is who I am. I am the angry person. I am the lustful person. I am the despairing person. I am the whatever person. And then it just makes sense that we're going to do something that fits that story because that's who we are. So it's really important that we understand that we're not giving the, the practice of awakening, this practice of mindfulness, it isn't about giving free reign to, to emotions. So we're not acting out the emotions. But we're also not trying to repress them, we're not judging them as good or bad. They're just present moment phenomena. They're just thoughts and emotions arising in the here and now due to causes and conditions. It's not a mistake. Have you ever had a, an emotion that was a mistake? I mean, we might think that the answer is yes. But emotions aren't mistakes. Emotions are just natural forces. Like, it, it wouldn't make sense to say that breeze is a mistake or that sound of a bird is a mistake or clouds are mistakes. Even though we might prefer the clear sky, it's not a mistake. It's the natural unfolding of causes and conditions. And it's exactly the same with emotions, thoughts. They come and go due to causes and conditions just like everything else. So we don't want to indulge them as if they're more than what they are. You know, me who's sad or me who's upset or me who's hungry or wants, needs. But we also don't want to fear them. We don't want to feel like Emotions are inherently a problem that need to be controlled or manipulated or fixed or denied, distracted from. That's why often the Buddhist teachings are, con are called the middle path. This is a phrase the Buddha used. It's not that it's some middle distance between these two alternatives, but it's neither this nor that. Neither the identification and proliferation with emotion, nor the denial or distraction or the destruction of emotion, like getting rid, needing to destroy them. It's really, the middle path is really the path of mindful presence, which is another way of saying understanding emotions for what they are. Seeing that they're just, and that it's, it's not like our conceptual answer. It's not like we're trying to get the right answer what an emotion is. But it's really learning that it's possible to show up, like, we're just there with it. Just like we can be there with another person or we can be there with our experience of our body. That really is the essence of the practice, is just to, to be there, to be present. So we'll be sitting in just a moment. I'll go through the instructions again, but I'll save maybe the last 15 minutes just for silence. Let me just check in. Is it feeling a little cool for people? Is it Anne? Mm -hmm. Would you turn the thermostat up just to follow the up arrow to, to 68? I think it's set lower than that. It's going to get really hot and then... It, oh. Yeah, just... Just 68? Yeah. It will get really hot with 68 and then it will... It will kind of settle down, so don't panic if you start feeling really warm for the next 10 minutes.
So feel free to stretch out your legs if you need to so that you'll be able to sit for about 25 minutes, 30 minutes comfortably. And you know if the pain becomes overwhelming, you can always adjust the posture. Just do it as quietly as you can so you're not disturbing the people around you. And let the adjustment itself become part of the meditation. So you're just noticing what it feels like to move the body and maybe you get a chance to see some emotion like shame for having to move your body. You can see that it arises and if you don't take it personally, the shame arises and then it just ends on its own. And remember we're cultivating a stable, comfortable posture People often find it useful to take several easy but deep breaths so you're slowly filling and emptying the lungs a handful of times. Really take your time though with this deep breathing so it's a relaxed and comfortable activity. You can actually explore how much air you can bring in until the lungs become full and how much air you can comfortably exhale, emptying the lungs completely. So one more time in a very easy way, fill and empty the lungs. And whenever you're done, allow the breathing to continue on its own. So you don't need to try to make the breath any particular way. And we'll begin the meditation period by relaxing the body and most importantly, allowing the mind to relax. To relax into the present moment and receiving the sound of the bell. In a couple minutes, we'll practice resting here in the experience of hearing. Noticing how effortless hearing is.
Hearing just happens. Rediscovering the receptive mind or the knowing mind, the mind that just knows sounds are like this. And notice that there's no need to send the mind out to the sounds. It's actually much better to just allow the mind to relax in the space of the present moment. And just in this relaxing presence, sounds are known. And then in the same way, allowing the mind to relax here and now. And now, turning the attention, noticing the sensations of the body. Again, noticing that no particular effort is needed to be sensitive to sensations in the body. This sensitivity this knowing of sensations is actually effortless. Unless the mind gets distracted or caught up, we can't actually stop being sensitive of the body. The sensations are being known moment by moment. Sometimes this receptive quality of the mind is described as a mirror that just reflects the truth of things, reflects the truth of the body, for example. Sensations are like this. It's a perfect reflection, so the unpleasant sensations are seen as being unpleasant and all the pleasant sensations of the body are simply known as being pleasant. And all the neutral sensations are also clearly seen as neutral, either pleasant or unpleasant. Letting the awareness or the mindfulness be quite inclusive. So we're knowing the body sensations, the whole body. Also aware of sounds here in the space of the present moment. And it's also possible to be aware of the mood or the attitude, the different qualities or textures of the mind. 
Is the mind dull or restless? Is the mind happy or weighed down, burdened? Calm or agitated? And no matter the particular mood, we just trust thoughts and emotions to come and go, sounds come and go, and of course sensations also come and go. might find it useful now to give the mind a more specific anchor for the attention. So allowing the attention to rest in the experience of the breathing process, feeling the belly rise and fall or expand and contract, or perhaps feeling the breath better at the nostrils that touching sensation as the air goes in through the nostrils and then out through the nostrils. But realizing that mindfulness of breathing happens best when the mind rests in the present moment, in the space of the present moment, and then the breath is just naturally known in the moment. When you notice the mind has gotten caught up in thought, take a moment and allow the mind to release. It's releasing its identification or attachment and understanding that, oh, it's just thoughts. And you can even use that word in your mind, ah, thinking, just thinking. 
or you can be more specific, just planning. And then once the mind has released its identification, then reminding the mind that it's possible to relax, both the body and mind. And then return to the breath, simply open or become receptive to the natural movement of the breath in the body, noticing as the breath comes in, noticing the sensations as the breath goes out, having the intention to have an unbroken knowing of the breath for periods of time at least, as best as possible. So we'll continue now in silence.
simply noticing where the mind is without judgment. Remembering the intention to come back and rest in the present moment, seeing or knowing things as they are, using the anchor of the breathing process or whatever works to learn how to more fully rest the mind in knowing, knowing the way things are, knowing the way the breath is moment by moment or the sounds or sensations in the body.
of course. It's not the habit of the mind to be both relaxed and alert. So if you notice the mind being very alert, but not relaxed, then remind the mind to relax, to let go. That mindfulness doesn't require a lot of doing. It's more about receptivity. If your mind is quite dull, so there already is some tranquility, but not alert, then you want to notice this mirror-like quality that even if there's a lot of sleepiness, it's possible to be interested, to be clear about the experience of being sleepy. So we learn how to invite a deeper relaxation and we learn that it's possible to invite a more keen interest, an authentic interest in the truth of things, the truth of the body or the truth of the mind as it actually is in each moment. Be sitting for another six minutes or so.
taking a moment and just notice the mood or attitude, any clear emotion. Without looking for anything in particular, realizing it's possible to know the mood or to know the qualities of the mind itself. We, of course, think these emotions are personal, but in fact, they're just something that's being known that can be known. It's not the knower, It's just something being known, sadness or dullness, restlessness, whatever the particular mood or qualities, it's just something that can be known here and now. Known and let go of. And you might like to end with this nice gesture. It's called Anjali, but just whatever feels right, feels good. Then moving slowly, feel free to stretch or adjust the body any way that feels good. So we'll take a little time. Uh, It's always, as you've heard me say, really nice to hear from people what you're noticing in your practice, what's been challenging, what's been good. And uh, maybe we'll start first just seeing if people have some observations about seeing emotion, whether it was in tonight's sit or at home. And what you observed, like if you saw an emotion, saw a mood, some emotional quality, what happened when you saw it? And, uh, or what was in the way of being clear? You know, I use the word see. Obviously, I'm not talking about visually seeing it, but just knowing it is actually the word I, me- I meant to use. But we use seeing and knowing synonymously sometimes. So what, what were you aware of in terms of emotion? Yes, and say your names, please.
kind of self-consciousness that I'm, I'm always watching myself meditating and then I go, oh, I'm watching myself meditate. I'm not really feeling anything, but I just keep feeling I'm spinning my wheels just watching myself meditating. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Charlie. That's a good comment because it's, it's, I think it's really typical and uh, it's a tricky place in a way. Uh, it's like, you know, whenever we're in a new situation, <clears throat> there is a sense, there's often a sense of self-consciousness, whatever it might be. You know, if you've never swum and there you are in a swimming pool, you might feel really self-conscious there in your bathing trunks, you know. How, how does this work? <laughs> And it's a little bit like that in meditation, you know, we're kind of in this empty space of our mind, you know, supposed to be meditating. I did this retreat this last weekend with a Tibetan teacher, um, Mingya Rinpoche. And uh, in the Tibetan tradition, it's at least in some schools in the Tibetan tradition, they like to say, you know, the best meditation is non-meditation. <laughs> because you know, when we've got this thing we're supposed to do to meditate, then we can get self-conscious, like, am I doing it right? Is this it? Is that it? So remember, and I tried to emphasize this tonight, instead of immediately trying to meditate, just follow the instructions, which is, and give yourself this instruction to just relax. Because awareness is a natural thing. That was supposed to be louder. <laughs> but you didn't have to do anything to hear that sound. Knowing awareness is just there. It's like an essential, um, inherent quality of the mind. So what we're resting, you know, the resting is mostly about discovering that we don't have to do all this extra stuff, like worry, trying, we can rest into the natural luminosity of the mind, the mind that just knows. This is actually a definition of Buddha that I like quite a bit. Some of you who are more familiar with the Buddhist tradition know that we practice taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. It's something that is true in all the different Buddhist schools and it sounds a little bit cultish until you realize that Buddha means, at least in the way that I practice, Buddha means not this guy who lived 2,600 years ago, because he's dead. So what are, exactly would we be taking refuge in? We're taking refuge in the one who knows. So we're taking refuge in this inherent awareness, this sort of space of knowing. And the way we take refuge in it isn't like me doing that because the sense of me needing to take refuge is already it's kind of like a, a disturbance in the mind so the way we take refuge in awareness is we relax we trust it's there it's like what happens when we don't do anything is awareness <laughs> right I mean if, when you don't do anything you're aware you're still aware so that will help with the self-consciousness, like that not make it a big deal, like there's something you do. You just practice relaxing the mind. Just let it relax. And then, of course, the mind's habit is not to be relaxed. The mind's habit is to be disturbed, to do, to get, to become. So then every time we notice that, then that's where the practice is. 
the work of practice is actually to remember to relax. To notice when we're not relaxed and then relax. Notice and relax. And um, each time we notice that the mind isn't relaxed, like we're thinking, we're planning, we're worrying, we're comparing. Instead of thinking, oh, I got to get back to the breath to relax, that's just more agitation. So what we try is right there in the disturbance, right there in the distraction, we just relax. What do we relax? We're relaxing with the distracted mind. The distracted mind is like this, right? So it's like we don't have to become the non-distracted person before we relax. First we relax right with whoever, whatever is going on. We just relax there. And how do we relax? Is we just let it be, we just let it be what it is. So if we're all worked up, you know, we've been proliferating around some painful memory, we thought we were sitting, but a few minutes into the sit, we just slipped off, and now it's been several minutes, maybe 30 minutes, you know, we didn't even hear the meditation alarm go off. Or still, I've had, this has happened to me sometimes, you know, where you're not even aware that your time is up. You're so wrapped up in your worry or judging or kvetching. Isn't that a Yiddish word? It's kind of spinning. And so um, there you are. But in that moment, there can be just a simple acknowledgement, a, a simple receptivity. This mess is like this. The mess of the mind, the mind all tangled, the mind weighed down. Because, you know, when we proliferate with an emotion for a period of time, the body starts getting tight in a very particular way that mirrors that mind state. And so to just open to that, to know that it's like this, means to feel everything that's there, to see and feel and know everything that's there in that moment and to not react. So even that's a relaxation, but it's a relaxation often into something unpleasant because what we're noticing is the after effect of having been caught in some drama. We're all tied in knots, mental and also physical knots, energetic knots, and we'll feel that being knotted up. So, but we practice trusting the relaxation and so even it, when there is self-consciousness, we can practice trusting that too. Instead of feeling like, I've got to get back to my meditation, then what we're doing is we're trying to escape the self-consciousness, which just creates more tension in the mind. So instead, we just include that self-consciousness. Oh, okay. It's like this. You know, so there's a, we, the mind, the body can relax with that too. Is, is there anything that the mind and body can't relax with? Well, then we can always step back and relax with that. So maybe there is, maybe the answer is yes, I can't relax with this. Well, can we relax with not being able to relax with that? So there's always, and we've got to remember this, it's always possible to take another step back, or it's just taking a more spacious perspective. Well, can this be okay? Not that it, I want this to be this way forever, but it is this way right now. And I've learned in my life to relax is better than to be tight, so can this be okay? Because it is this way. Not that I want it to be this way, but it is this way. So it's not about being passive, it's just about acknowledging in this moment it's like this. Yeah, Marissa. Um, I was just thinking about the 
too hard of a pillow. <laughs> and it immediately um, just kind of numbed my butt and then my legs went to sleep really quick. So it was kind of the first time I had a really unpleasant physical experience that I couldn't like, really get away from and accept and relax with. Yeah. And, um, and then I just kind of hot and kind of nauseous and <laughs> all these different things. And so it's hard for me, it's really hard to. Yeah, so sometimes, now of course you have a couple options there. One is to quietly make an adjustment or remove a sweater. Or, but you know, the more we practice, the more we don't want to use that option. We want to take advantage of that claustrophobic feeling, that being trapped in this meditation, you know, because I told myself I'm not moving or people are going to think I'm a bad meditator or whatever. So we're, we're kind of trapped, but then we take advantage of it because what do you do when, the, when you have pain that isn't easily gotten rid of or you're in a situation that you can't get out of? What do you do when it's unpleasant? Well, you, what we normally do is we subtly resist it or not so subtly resist it. It's almost as if we've got this basic uh, reaction habit that we think fits all circumstances, which is when things are rough, tighten up. You know, like defend yourself, okay. It's a rough life, so I'll just defend myself. As if like that that's gonna work. And all we do is get tighter and tighter. And it's this is really what most of us do. And then of course we get really tired because that that strategy in life to tighten up when things are rough is tiring. And so then we need to drink or we need to, we need to sort of uh, just like um, extinguish the mind for, in some way, whether it's drinking or some intense activity or sleep or some unconscious distraction, you know, whatever it is, overeating, over media consumption, something to go dead for a while before we can then practice being tight in, in relation or in reaction to what's difficult. So we get that that's not the answer. So then, but relaxation doesn't seem possible because the unpleasantness appears like it's going to kill us if we relax with it. Because that's what our relationship to pain, it tells us, like whether it's a painful emotion or memory or just pain in the body, as you described, it really feels, I mean, it, it actually seems like if I relax to this, I'll be destroyed. But what we want to do is actually explore that edge. Will we? Like, what, can we just relax with this? And you might get some jerks, you know, your body might sort of have a little spasm or a little freak out. But that's okay. Just don't intentionally move. I mean, that's an option. I'm not saying that you should do that each time. But sometimes that's a really nice option. Like, you realize you've way overdressed, like when the heat got really hot, you know. And you know, that can really trigger a lot of claustrophobia and panic attack even. But you can just sit there and just let the mind scream, let the body freak out. But we're just so giving permission to the body and the mind to do whatever it does, but we're not intentionally doing anything. We're just trusting that, you know, I'm staying put. Because we can always make adjustments if we never just stay put, we'll never learn about other options. And there will be some times when we can't move or there won't be any other options for a difficult experience. 
And we gain so much confidence in the mind and the heart by staying put. Which is why it's really nice, if you haven't yet, you know, you might want to get yourself a little timer. Or I, I hear, I don't know this personally, but I hear that cell phones have timers in them. And, uh, and then you might want to cover it, up, cover it up so it's not so noisy, so you don't have to look at your watch. And then set a time that you think you can handle, and then just stay put. Knowing that you're going to feel like checking the clock, or just giving up no matter what the clock says, but then develop the six, this uh, strength of resolve. But make sure you start where you can be successful. So don't start with 60 minutes when 10 minutes is your limit. But if 10 minutes is easy, don't stick with 10 minutes unless you know your schedule, that's all you have. But kind of work toward at least a couple times a week what's a little bit right at your edge so that you really get that panic attack feeling, whether it's because of the heat or the restlessness or the pain or the boredom or the doubt. This is so stupid. Why am I doing this? I've got so much to do and here I am just being with the body, being with the breath. I mean, <laughs> well at least they don't charge money at Common Ground. <laughs> There's some people, I get calls every once in a while from um, unnamed meditation groups that charge like $2,000 or whatever for like a weekend seminar to learn meditation. And people call, uh, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think? And <laughs> I never know what to say. But uh, uh, I guess the, the point that I was making is, I'm not sure what the point was. <laughs> it was there and then it went away. Hmm? Yeah, right. Well, I was, I, I, but I'm not sure why my mind jumped to that. Why am I doing this? Why yeah, the doubt. Oh, yeah, the doubt. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, so doubt is just another one of those things that can feel impossible to be with. Surprisingly, I mean, you would think that pain would be the hardest, but actually, doubt's pretty hard. And the hardest thing just to relax with, surprisingly, is joy. It's not easy to let the mind and body be filled with joy without taking hold of it, without wanting to do something, without wanting to react to it. So we're going to have to learn with everything. So we have to start with whatever's up for us, like restlessness or just you know, being uncomfortable in some way. And the key is just to, you know, you learn this if you study education, that learning happens best when you're mostly successful, but there's just a, you're just being pushed a little bit. So like they've done studies where kids perform best if they're getting 90, 95% correct answers and 5 to 10% mistakes. So we should feel pretty successful in our sitting practice. We want to set a bar that where we're going to feel like we learned something, we, we kind of went to our edge, but we were successful. We don't want to like have a sit and feel like a failure time after time after time because nobody will continue with the practice. Other thoughts come to mind from your practice? Yes. Jim. Yeah, Jim. Um, it's easier to set tonight, but what I noticed was um, once I quit running around, I was aware of how judgmental my thoughts were towards myself, and then, then feeling the sadness about that. 
Yeah. So I was able to relax back out of that. And then nice thoughts toward myself came. And I liked that. <laughs> but I was able to pull back and relax out of that because the phrase, uh, this is just what it is. Um, and then kind of spontaneously, and I started thinking about just compassion. And it, was, I mean, it wasn't that short of a process, but it was nice to watch the swing and I was able to pull back into relaxing and I was fortunate to stay thought I liked about myself. Yeah. I was able to just relax and pull back and then just kind of spontaneously just thinking about the compassion. Thanks. That that brings up a point I wanted to make tonight. Um, it's it, which is an important point. It it just sort of part of understanding the lawfulness, like how it all works in the mind. And this is the whole point of mindfulness practice, awareness practice, is just to understand the mind, to use the mind to understand the mind. So it's not like a foreign land. You know, we live our life so with so much distraction, we don't actually know the mind. We don't know the heart. So one of the things Jim said that I, I think makes this point well is that when, when we are mindful, when we're aware of unwholesome emotions, agitation in the mind, it tends to fall apart. You, you, you used the phrase, you know, I forget how you said it, but you, you, you were able to relax out of it, I think is what you said. But so when, when there's irritation in the mind, for example, like you feel uncomfortable and then you're irritated with the feelings of un being uncomfortable, the pain in the body, the unpleasantness. And then you're aware of the irritation. Aware of the irritation or mindful of the ir irritation means you're not taking it personally. You're just aware that irritation is like this. And in order for irritation to continue and to get stronger, the mind has to be identified with it. It has to be taking it personally. It's that stickiness that gives it, the kind of revs it up. There's a little dance between the sensations and the thoughts. We're irritated, and the irritation itself creates a contraction, and the contraction reminds us that we're irritated. And then we're, irrit we're thinking irritation, and that makes it more of a contraction, and that contraction reminds us that we're irritated, and it just builds. So there's a feedback loop. There are many different kinds. It's just a simplistic version of a feedback loop. But when we're mindful of it, the feedback loop is broken because we're not, we're just relaxing, as Jim said, we're relaxing with the irritation. And as he said, we relax out of it because with the relaxed awareness, there's no feeding of the irritation. So afflictive mind states, emotional states, tend to go away quickly when we're mindful. Now, that means the mental part goes away. But remember I mentioned before that if we've been chewing on something for a while, the body starts to mirror the mind state, and that physical contraction may not disappear quickly. You know, especially if it's a deep habit, like something you've been doing for years, then it can trigger a real kind of way of holding the body that's like well-practiced, and it may take quite a while for that to sort of more slowly the release. But the mind, the level of thought and emotion, that can disappear very quickly. 
Now, just the opposite happens with wholesome emotions. So then Jim mentioned that, you know, then he started having pleasant thoughts of himself. And he saw that, he said he relaxed out of that too. But then he said spontaneously, but in Buddhism, in this practice of awareness, we see nothing is spontaneous in a sense, meaning everything's lawful. Everything happens due to causes and conditions. It just doesn't happen out of nowhere. So he noticed wholesome thoughts or pleasant thoughts about himself, right? And he said he relaxed out of that. But when you pay attention to something that's wholesome, it doesn't disappear, it tends to grow. And the reason is, by definition, wholesome means that the mind state is in alignment with the way things are. It's kind of a mirroring or a, um, a reflection of something universal. Yeah, that's my guess, is that that with the personal thoughts about yourself, there was also the flavor of, of true, what we call metta or karuna, uh, just like a universal love or a universal compassion. So it's not specific to any one person or being, but the story in your mind at first was about yourself. That story went away, but that what was left was this ocean of non-separateness, but it was being expressed as compassion, kind of a uh, kind of a generalized tenderness that doesn't need an object. That's what metta or karuna is. It's when there's love or compassion that doesn't need an object. It goes everywhere. So it just who's ever in front, we have tender feelings for. If no particular object's in front, it's just tenderness without an object, just kindness without an object, warmth without an object. So just this is good homework for us this week is, you know, as we're talking about emotion, to just see that, see the power of mindfulness, what it does when you bring that simple, relaxed presence to afflictive emotion, see what happens. And when you bring that calm, clear, relaxed presence, knowing to wholesome emotions, see what happens. So if there's a little, just a tiny little seed of gratitude, then just notice gratitude as one aspect of what's happening in the present moment. Tune into it, relax with it, see what happens to the gratitude. See how it unpacks itself. And it kind of reveals like a, an aspect of the background of the mind or the nature of the mind. The more we recognize that these wholesome qualities actually represent the background of the mind, then we're less neurotic, like wanting to be a generous person, wanting to be a kind person, wanting to be a wise person. We realize that it's all here, and it's much more about removing the obscurations, like what's in the way of being kind, what's in the way of being sensitive, what's in the way of being a good friend. It's all the stuff on the surface that's in the way. What else have you been noticing tonight or at home? Yeah, tea, right? Mm -hmm. um, I've noticed the past couple of weeks that during my sets, a lot of times I can feel the emotion coming in and out. I can name it, you know, sad, sadness, and you can watch it kind of dissipate and then have something else come and name that. And and, and that's really um, satisfying to be able to watch things fall apart like that. But then 
you believe you're sick, you go into your life, and the speed goes fast. Yeah, yeah. It's like you drop the needle and you're right back there, and, and an hour later you go, wow, desire, desire, attachment. And it doesn't hit you for long after the emotion has already caused its shock waves yeah. and reactivity. It's like the two things, how can they catch up with each other? That state that you can be really aware, and then other times when you're like in this gray out. Well, when we do, you know, it's like drowning, and then finally we come up for a breath of air, and we realize we've been drowning. And in that moment, you know, we can either hate our life, which is just to be drowning again, or we can extend being above water by having compassion for being a drowning human being. Because that's what it's like out there in the world most of the time. There, there are so many triggers, uh, um, so many things that we see, experience, that trigger these very well-entrenched habits of reactivity. And then we get consumed, we get lost in the reactivity because it's so seductive, it feels so personal. It's not easy to be mindful out there in the world. That's why we cultivate this practice in a simple, clean, safe setting, like our meditation room here, or you know, your little corner in your apartment or whatever. We, we find a place, we cultivate safety in that place. You might build an altar for yourself, or whatever it is that makes it a safe place, something pleasant there that helps your mind to relax looking out a window, a photograph of somebody that you really inspires you or something like that or whatever. You know, it's different for different people, a Buddha like we have behind here. Um, and then just let the wildness of our daily life be the cause for compassion. Like, let it tenderize the heart like, oh, yeah, I'm a wild animal out there, you know, reacting, surviving, trying to, you know, not make too big of a mess. And that's just how it is. And, uh, and that, that compassion keeps us a little bit more in the game, as opposed to being angry at herself or judgmental or just giving up. So you'll see that that may be a way to start bridging what you do on the cushion to what the daily life is. And I'll talk more about this in the weeks ahead about practicing in daily life. Of course, the real answer is the more we do it, on the cushion or on the chair in a formal meditation, the more it just gets carried into our daily life. But it, it takes time. So we have to, I really, you know, I'm in such a strong believer in just getting into meditation every day, no matter what. Putting more and more time in. Once you have enough confidence, start going on retreats when you have time, depending on your life situation, because it makes a difference. And the thing about the insights we get, like you described so well, T, you know, where you can really name it or just see it clearly and it falls apart. And it comes up because of its momentum, but you name it or see it clearly, it falls apart. That's, it is a cause for a lot of confidence. But more than the confidence, you're, you're actually rewiring your mind. You are undercutting the tendency of the mind to react that way. So even when out in the daily world, in your real life, so to speak, you, you may act out, but it's, that groove isn't so deep, isn't so seductive. 
there, and even though you're acting it out as you've been conditioned to, it's like it's porous, it's spacious. There's a, uh, some aspect of the mind knows you're acting something unskillful out, even as you do it. Whereas before, you just would have done it blindly. Now you're kind of aware, this isn't right, I shouldn't be doing this, but you're doing it anyway, and you're infusing the situation, not with judgment, with, with, with compassion, because you, you understand that there is some mindfulness, but right now, delusion is stronger than the mindfulness. But it won't be long before mindfulness is stronger than the, than the delusion. Then you won't act it out, but this this delusion is still there, so it will be painful. You'll be here not acting out your impulse, you know, to scream at the person, but you'll be feeling like you really want to. So it's still a little bit like hell, but at least you're not making outward messes. But you're still conflicted. But eventually, it will be the, the mindfulness will so dominate that there won't be much left of the unwholesome impulse. And then, in situations in life that were used to be really conflicted and difficult will just be not a problem. And already, isn't that true? Aren't there some situations in life that maybe when you were a teenager or in your 20s or 30s was like, you know, just a mess? And now when you, you can actually be in that situation and it's either less of a mess or not a mess at all for you. So meditation is just speeding up this process of human wisdom. Yeah, Anne. Yeah, actually in response to what you were saying, I came to meditation the other way, in that I've been in some therapy for a year that teaches mindfulness. Without really, they do have a mindfulness class that teaches meditation, but they teach mindfulness just as a way to conduct yourself. And the biggest thing they try to teach is to feel your emotions when you have them. And it's amazing how we don't whether positive or negative, that we don't feel our emotions. And they do a lot of emphasis on what is the physical feeling. And that's what my therapist, what does this feel like? Where do you feel it? And that's how mindfulness was first taught to me. Mm -hmm. And then led me to meditation as a natural yeah. outcome of that. And it, it, it really does start to change with time if you kind of mindful even when you're not meditating, that you find it. In fact, I'm reading a book by the Dalai Lama that talks about emotional intelligence or awareness, mm -hmm. where there's the trigger and the action, but there are all sorts of things, the physical reactions, the thoughts, the thoughts about the thoughts, and everything that happens in between. Yeah. And mindfulness is about trying to catch up on everything between the trigger and the action, and with time, once you start to recognize your feelings when you have them, which is almost like a mini, mini, mini meditation. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, well, I'm having a feeling, and then you stop to kind of meditate in a sense for a moment. And at first it feels awkward because, like anything, you know, if, if you if you broke down playing Beethoven on the piano in little bits and pieces, it wouldn't sound pretty. And it's a little bit like that initially with mindfulness as we're out in the world and we ha we're having some mindfulness of our emotions, some awareness. We're not just blindly acting things out. It feels a little awkward. It feels a little self-conscious at first. Like, should we really be aware of this anger? It's like, we don't mind being angry at people, but we don't want to be aware that we're angry at people. It's actually much more unpleasant to be aware when we're angry or when we're jealous or when we're, you know, any 
uh, emotion. Um, but actually, that's all in the right direction because it's like Anne was saying, we start to see all of the kind of natural, lawful unfolding of how our mind, body, how the life situation happens. And that's liberating because now there's choices. Otherwise, there's no choice. We just blindly do whatever is the strongest impulse. Yeah, Vince. You know, I think common thought, you know, years ago on therapy, like your stall therapy, that you know, that there was big emphasis on um, releasing of that energy of like anger, like being a filled with a tennis racket, and now they're finding that, that isn't necessarily the case. Yeah. And that's so this kind of Sorry. <laughs> exactly. But you know, it's, and it sort of speaks to that whole idea of Stepping back and noticing it and watching it dissolve as, as yeah. opposed to thinking that you have to release it in some way for it in order for it to be for it to dissolve. Yeah, and like most of these strategies, there's always a sliver of truth to them. You know that, and then it just gets turned into a, a gimmick, basically, that gets far away from what's useful. And I think the sliver of truth is that. Sometimes when we, remember I mentioned that uh, kind of conflicted area where we have enough mindfulness not to act out, but it's still, the impulse is very much alive in us. And sometimes when we're in that place where we're not going to act it out, we're not going to say what we're inclined to say, or we're not going to whatever, what we're inclined to do. But there's a lot of energy moving in the body, and sometimes that energy needs to express itself, not so much in words, but in sweat, or in tears, or in laughter, or in shaking, or in different things. But we're not intentionally doing it. It's just a habit impulse that has a lot of momentum that just needs to sort of unwind. Because it doesn't, it's old avenue, you know, of screaming, or retreating and being the victim, those avenues don't exist anymore. So there may be another kind of way for all that wound up energy to sort of unwind. But all of that, the, the key to that though is not to personally do it, just to trust the, un, like the knot itself knows how to unwind and not to sort of feel we have to do it. So you know, on longer retreats, there may be somebody sobbing quietly during a meditation or, you know, people go through various kinds of, I guess you could call them purifications as the sort of mind, energy body and physical body sort of unwind because that's what happens over time. Everything unwinds. So maybe I'll leave the questions here if that's okay, but please, uh, it's really nice like tonight to hear from people and uh, bring these up, but I want to take the last 10 minutes just to share something related to the handout, which you can get on your way out if you didn't get it. And it's just a simple, but I think a very powerful model that you can work with. And I know I covered it a little bit last week, but I just want to go back to it. And in a way, it's the central model that the Buddha used. The first talk he ever gave was the Four Noble Truths. I, I think I mentioned the Four Noble Truths last week, right? And um, so it's just this different orientation, just as a quick review. 
So normally the way we're conditioned is as an animal, you know, we're looking for what's good, what's pleasant, what feeds us, things we can mate with, things that we feel safe, a hole that we can feel safe in, a cave we can feel safe in. You know, this is kind of our orientation. And to avoid things that are dangerous, that might hurt us. And uh, this relies on a kind of a constant uh, vigilance and really based on survival instinct, the fear of not surviving, the desire to survive. So it's really based on greed and aversion. And this is just kind of the makeup of most animals' minds, kind of what the wiring of uh, the, our animal conditioning. So instead we can, um, you know, we have this possibility to get interested in this whole thing and that being an animal is a suffering, it's bound up with suffering. It's like you can't be an animal and not suffer. And it's like, it's in the fabric. So even when the animal has a lot of nuts, you know, like the squirrel might have a lot of nuts, it's not like the squirrel is somehow suffering less. There's still that same tension, that ongoing tension. So as human beings, we have the capacity to contemplate this predicament of being a human being, right? So this, this kind of points us in the direction of a spiritual path as opposed to what we would call a worldly path. A worldly path is just being a better squirrel, you know, getting more nuts than the other guys, having them in a safer spot, kind of figuring out all the contingencies, having them covered. That's just like being a really effective squirrel or whatever. And a spiritual being is a being that is kind of, maybe doing that, I mean, still, you know, we're still collecting our nuts. But then we save some of our energy, our life energy, to contemplate what that experience is like, being uh, a being wanting to survive. So we're contemplating it. And we contemplate it where it means that we're beginning to notice the suffering. So this is really a generic suffering, like not just when we stub our toe or when we get hurt, which is suffering, of course, but a suffering that's always there. There's always a suffering. The suffering of wanting to become somebody better than who we are, that's a suffering. Wanting to be liked is suffering. Wanting not to be old is suffering or being in denial of being older is suffering. So there's all kinds of stress and suffering. So we contemplate it. We recognize, it. oh, there is suffering. Where does this suffering come from? How does this background stress, uneasiness, a sort of existential uneasiness, where does this, how does it arise in the mind? Like, are there moments where it isn't there? And then, what is it that happens that then brings it back in? So we're beginning to understand, because we've learned in life that nothing just happens, so if there is this sort of existential uneasiness, it has causes. So what are the causes? What is the experience of when there is no uneasiness in the mind? Like what is the experience of release that to the heart, the heart that's content, not afraid, not in need? What is that experience? And what does it reveal? So in Buddhism, the first noble truth is contemplating the truth of uneasiness. Second is contemplating how it arises. The third is realizing when it isn't there. Because yeah. we all have, you know, you don't have to be a Buddha, an enlightened being, 
to have moments of what we call cessation, the cessation of stress. It happens, we just don't notice it clearly when in those moments. And But when we do notice it clearly, it reveals this fourth thing, which is called the Eightfold Path. It, it, just the Buddha divided into eight categories, but I'm going to talk about it in three because it's simpler. So what, what do we learn about life when we're awake in a moment of release? Like mindful of a moment of release. We realize that release, this experience, we realize how it comes to be. And then we start making choices that increases the probability of release. That's the path. It's living a life that increases the probability of release. And basically it's developing morality, which is like learning to live harmoniously, because it creates a lot of stability. If we live in an unharmonious way, stealing, cheating, hurting other people, we tend to have a lot of stress because we're always worried if someone's going to get revenge. So there's a, there's a real emphasis in Buddhism, as in most spiritual traditions, on non-harming. And cultivating non-harming in all areas of all relationships. So it's not like a should, it's like a contemplation. Like how to be in this position of giving a talk without harming. So sometimes, you know, I get kind of carried away in the moment and I'll say something that's a little harsh or something that might be hurtful to somebody. Like I'll, like sometimes I'll make fun of the suburbs. And then, you know, but you know, some of you probably live in suburbs. And of course, the city's not so great either, by the way. And, but in any case, you know, you just, you can, so there's no end to how we can become sensitive without the tightness of political correctness it's just like we're sensitive to motivation and we're sensitive to where other people are at. We're just like we have sensitivity and we're committed to not harming. And we feel the more we're committed to not harming others, that which of course includes ourselves, we're one of those people we're not going to harm, the more we feel really safe in life. We trust our heart, you know. So that's the first part that was revealed. Like when we realize that the release of the heart comes from letting go of attachment, from self-centeredness, we realize that living harmoniously really helps releasing self-centeredness. The next thing we realize about the path is samadhi, the, the cultivation of tranquility is really important. Learning how to have a peaceful mind, learning how to rest the mind. So that's the basic instruction in meditation, resting the mind in the here and now. That's all you have to remember. If you just remember that as your only meditation instruction, can, you, can this mind rest here and now? Because if we think we're going to rest in some beautiful place out there, like we imagine calmness, that's stressful to have to have something that's other than what's actually happened. So we want to learn to rest here and now. And then developing that is what we call samadhi or concentration or learning how to come the mind, how the mind can come together in the present moment. 
So that's the second part of the path. So we have morality, non-harming, samadhi, the coming together of the mind in the present moment, which is a resting. It, it's not like we force it, but we learn to rest the mind in the present moment. That's how it comes together, from being scattered to being whole. And then the third part is wisdom. Panya is the Pali word. And wisdom is when we have that stability of not harming others and ourselves, and we've developed the skill of being present, relaxed and present, then wisdom arises naturally. It kind of naturally arises. And we just see, you know, from that perspective of calmness, we're already feeling the wholeness, the interconnectedness of all things. And insight gradually dawns on the mind. It's like, uh, it's even an insight that you wouldn't necessarily notice, but that doesn't mean it's happening. But what begins to slowly creep in to our understanding is how everything is happening on its own. And it undermines the habit of self-centeredness. Self-centeredness begins to fall away slowly. You know, sometimes we hear these stories where, you know, you take everything personally and then you have insight and then all, all is one. <laughs> and, but it's not, that's not really, I think, how it happens. It's really a gradual rewiring of the mind from where we see things very personally, take things in a self-centered way, to where it doesn't even, it, it just occurs to the mind less and less to react from a strong self-centered point of view. I mean, we're capable of it, but even when we do do it, when the perfect wave comes, you know, and triggers all of our self, whatever's left of our self-centered habit energy, it just doesn't, it just doesn't kind of, it isn't as believable as it once was. So even though we might even be acting it out, you know, why did you, you know, what about me, you know? All our friends went somewhere and they forgot to call and tell us, you know? What about, but it's like there's sort of a spacious, wisdom there that understands, oh, this is just a drama, and it's like this. And it's just, it's there, but it's just like, it's like uh, transparent. It's almost like uh, a shadow of what it used to be. And this is called wisdom. I'm running out of fingers. So, three parts of the Eightfold Path. Non-harming, or morality. Samadhi, the kind of unification of the mind, learning to rest the mind and then the natural wisdom that arises out of the stability of not harming and the clarity of a rested mind, a resting mind. So the samadhi gives us clarity, but, it, but the stability of not harming allows for, like, we can't really rest the mind when we're cheating and stealing and hurting other people. You know, if we're a bad person, it's not easy to just rest the mind in the present moment. So we really have to do that work. I mean, besides the fact that it's <laughs> nobody deserves to be harmed by us, it's we have self-centered reasons to do this, which will eventually disappear. <laughs> and then we'll have the calm, and then we'll have the insight. So that's the path, and that's what the handout uh, goes through tonight that you can look at at home. Maybe at the maybe uh, unless it's for everybody, but I think. Okay, but it has to be quick. It's the, the relationship between the non-clinging versus 
human relationships and attachments? Well, let's have that be our experiment this week. And would you bring this up next week because it's a big question. Can you have love and real connection and being engaged as a parent and a friend without the attachment? That's a great question. Have a good week, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.